This morning, the topic that I have for you is servant leadership. It's kind of generic, but I couldn't think of a better one, so there it is. This is one of the most intimate settings in the Bible conveyed to us that we're about to study. It's when the disciples, whom are also the apostles, same group of guys, would be sitting down to dinner, the Passover supper, supper with Jesus. I got to get this thing straight because I can't think if it isn't right. Okay. This last dinner, this, this Passover supper that Jesus spends with his disciples, who we also know to be the apostles, Jesus being the Lord of glory before his crucifixion and resurrection. That's going to happen soon, very soon in John's chronology. In fact, the next major event in John's gospel is going to be the arrest trial and crucifixion of our Lord. What we have here is the final gathering. The final gathering. It's so important that it's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here in John. It's even referenced in other places in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I can't help but to wonder if I knew this was my last evening, how I might spend it. I think you and I are posed with that question on a regular basis because our society is racing toward an ultimate end, and it knows it. Amen? It might not know how to live the life, but it does know that death is inevitable. So it's going to live the life that it has now, whether we as Christians... Bible-believing, creed-holding, confessional Christians. I'm not talking about these people limping in the street going to church once a year. I'm talking about Christ followers. We believe something strongly, and we believe something different. And it is amazing to me that so many people would take the little bit of time that they have in life and waste it on such nonsensical things. Jesus is staring at his end. And what does he do? He spends it with his closest friends. And he drops a few more lessons on them. Some of the most important lessons in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, maybe we can just say in Christianity. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is like one big orb of material happening in a particular event. So much that we're going to cover over the next few weeks takes place right there at that table. I know some of you can relate to that. I don't know if your house is anything like mine, but some of the best moments in my house and with my family happen at the most awkward times. Last night we were outside and we had a fire going and Dimey were sitting, Dimey and I were sitting outside trying to have a date. Sarah came outside and she was playing her playlist. She hijacked my Bluetooth and she started playing. And next thing you know, we were dancing. And that was an awesome moment because I love my Sarah. How, yeah. 
Good job, Hannah. (sighs) Sitting around the dining room table, how many conversations do you know your kids got from you or your spouse or loved one got from you that they would never get? How many of you guys are, 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 have stood at the bank or on the boat or on the shore with a line in the water having some of the most important conversations of your life with your son or a boy or whoever you might be mentoring? The reality of the matter is, is we think, say amen if you're listening, we think we have to create a program to have important moments. And the truth of the matter is, is while we're trying to make life programmatic, important moments are flying by us by the, by the minute. Before we get into the three simple points that I have for us this morning, I want you to get this. Don't waste your time. It's limited. Spend it to the glory of God and the good of those who are around you. Notice, before we get into this, our first point is going to be the setting. Jesus is not out trying to do one more miracle. I think many of you would do that. I've, how, many more, how much more time do I have? I've got to be out in the public. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He's spending it with his people. He's done what his father has called him to do, and he's not going to miss these final moments with his people. So, having said that, observe with me John chapter 13. Some of the final moments of our Lord here on the earth, and he chooses to spend it demonstrating servant leadership. The first point that I have for us is found in verses 1 and 2, and we're going to call it the setting. Verses 1 and 2 read like this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Judas, knowing that the Father had given him all things, into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper and had laid his outer garments aside, taking the towel, etc., etc., etc. The first thing that I'd like you to note is that Jesus made time before the crucifixion for his disciples. He wasn't going to allow the future plans established by the, future, by the Father in eternity past occur before he could sit down and fellowship, slow time down as it were, in fellowship with his disciples. Again, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You remember what that little phrase in John's gospel here, the hour, was referring to, I hope, from John chapter 12. We already covered it a couple of times. It refers to that crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ that had already been planned by the Father in history, in eternity. This was part of his sovereign pleasure and plan. The hour is coming, Jesus would say. The hour is coming. And here John borrows from that, and he says, when Jesus knew that 
His hour had come. It's poetic, but it's plain. God's time for the son's sacrifice was quickly approaching. And Jesus is taking his final opportunity to invest in his closest disciples. This is an intimate setting and one that has been appreciated by readers and scholars and Christians for centuries. Another thing that we can glean from this setting is the fact that Jesus loves his people. Jesus loves his people. He doesn't just like them. He doesn't just root for them or suggest that they do this or that they do that or just teach them. I think to a degree Jesus does all those things, but what we really need to get here in this text is that Jesus loves his people. Imagine it, that that he should love us at all. That Jesus loves me. Not so fast. That Jesus loves you. Not like, not help, not motivate, not assist or suggest, but loves. That as glorious and amazing as Jesus is, he should love me and love you. But church, this is the guts and the gist of the gospel. This is it. Jesus loves us. And looking at the pivotal moment in history, hours in the distance, he loved his friends enough to stop time and to sit with them, to be with them, to hand them a few more lessons before he goes. It says, he loved his people, I love this, he loved his people in the world. Such a great phrase. He loved his people, having loved his people in the world. I think that means that Jesus is capable of loving us wherever we are. And some of us, some of you need to know that because you're not where you belong. You know you've been places this week that God did not permit you to go. But you need to hear he still loves you. Jesus loves you where you are. Not where you could potentially be in a year if you do enough Tony Robbins and enough Dave Ramsey. He's not in love with you for what you could do. You can't do anything to impress him. He loves you because he's that great. And with all your shortcoming and your baggage and and your impression of yourself or someone else's impression of who you are or what you might be or who you were five years ago. Jesus loves his people in the world. Where you are. You don't have to get somewhere so that you can start being loved by Jesus. Jesus loves you.
Let that be a reminder for you when you are finding yourself where you ought not be. When you find your feet in places that God never permitted you to walk, remember what Pastor Joe said. Jesus loves you in the world. He has expectations of his people, but he will love you. And he doesn't want you to fail, but he'll love you in your failure, and he will celebrate with you your success with blessings and encouragement of peace and joy. And he will love you. But he's not asking you. This is a truth that you and I cannot merit. This is a love we can't gain. We can crawl and limp and tooth and nail our way to Jesus' love, or we can just say, here I am, Lord. Love me. Knowing that his love is transformational, right? These guys, they've left their families, their jobs, their retail jobs, and they're sitting in the most important conversation, the most intimate setting in history. This thing has been painted. It has been philosophized and pontificated. It has been thought about and considered. Who has not heard the words, the Last Supper? It's just a bunch of barefoot men hanging out with their Lord loving on him a little bit before he leaves. He loved him in the world. And they were in the world, and although the world was responsible and guilty for terrible sin and unbelief, it can't keep Jesus from loving his people in it. Hear me. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That's not my word, that's Romans. So if you're here this morning or online listening and you're thinking, I'm in church, but I don't deserve it, that makes two of us. I'm not in Christ because of who I am. I'm in Christ because of who Christ is and what he has done. There's this turn in the drama not a practical turn, but a spiritual one. Not a superficial turn, but an eternal one. John makes this note about the spiritual warfare that's taking place even in this intimate moment. He says, look at it. Verse 2, during the supper, the devil had already put it into Judas Iscariot's heart to betray Jesus. <sighs> Judas has been with Jesus, man. Right? Judas has been with Jesus. He's gone on long walks with Jesus. We've already gotten a little picture of kind of who he is because John snuck it in there, right? He was a thief. He was crooked. He was not a straight guy. This is what I want you to hear. Say amen if you're listening. 
physical proximity to Jesus doesn't ensure spiritual proximity to Jesus. Let me say that again. Physical proximity to Jesus does not ensure spiritual proximity to Jesus. Judas Iscariot was close to Jesus physically a lot. But Judas Iscariot was far from Jesus spiritually. And so it is today. Don't assume that because you or someone else is close to the church or close to Christians that you or they are close to Christ too. To be a follower of Christ is to have faith in Christ. To be someone who is possessed by God the Holy Spirit and who therefore endeavors in God's strength and wisdom to fulfill Christ-like life. I don't care if you're in a church or know a lot of Christians. If Christ is your all, if Christ, or excuse me, if Christ isn't your all, if Christ isn't the great love of your life, if Christ isn't the first and last thing on your mind every day, you're either very immature as a Christian or you are not a Christian at all. To be a Christian means to commit to Jesus Christ by faith. And all that that entails. I've had enough of the culture that says, I don't need to go to church to have my faith. Well, that's true. Kind of. The greatest Christians I know were Christians who were a part of a fellowship in a Bible-preaching church. They knew, as many years as they had lived in the gospel, that they still needed the gospel. So while it's, while it's true that the thief on the cross never got a chance to go to church, I don't know a lot of people who are nailed to a cross. Not going to church and still being a Christian should not be our M.O., our M.O. should be, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my Lord, and he loves me. He loved me when I was unlovable. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to be faithful. And Jesus says, come together. Worship. Now, I know we're in interesting times these days. We're together, us who are here, and we're together with those who are online, even though we're not together. Some of us are, are afraid of what everything entails. Some of us are afraid of everything that the future might hold. And some of us are here each and every week and couldn't be here this week, and so they're online. There are different reasons for people to watch church online. But are we together? Let's not forsake what Christ came to achieve in us and those who are with us. That's the setting. The second thing that I want you to note is the service. This is beginning in verse 3, following down to verse 11. This is our next point, the service. This is where we see Jesus, having established the setting for the Last Supper, 
serve his disciples in that intimate setting that we just discussed. You can read it. It says, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you're not washing my feet, are you? And Jesus said, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will afterward. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I don't care how prophetic you think you are. But if I don't wash you, Peter, you will have no share with me. And then Peter said, well, then don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and my head, too. I just am so grateful for Peter. Jesus demonstrated his greatness by doing something menial. Jesus demonstrated just how high he was as a person by stooping low and getting dirty. How could he do this? I think John tells us in verse 3. Look at verse 3 in chapter 13 of John and find these words. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. Did you get that verse? If you make notations in your Bible, circle it, it, highlight it, make an arrow, asterisk, do whatever it is that you do, because this is an important and pivotal verse for this text. Jesus, knowing that, what's the word? Knowing. Let's try that again. I went too fast. Jesus, what's the next word? Knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands, And that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. Did you get that? This is so important. Because all that was settled, after all that had been settled, after all that had been done, because of everything that was in place, because of what the Father had said, Because of what was going on theologically within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because of all of that, Jesus got up to serve his disciples. Did you get that order? Knowing that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from the Father, and he was going back to the Father, he got up to serve. You see that order? This is so incredibly important. Friends, this cannot be missed. We serve from a place of plenty. We serve from a place of plenty. We serve from a place of confidence. We serve from a place of self-awareness. Jesus knew that God had ordained all things and he knew what his future held with the Father. And so he could get up and wash feet with confidence because washing feet was no big deal when you realize what your Father has for you. This is what we'd call servant leadership, but that phrase may carry some baggage for different people, so I want to break it down for us. Two simple points. Let me define these terms. First, leadership. Leadership. Leadership is the simple process of influence. 
Leadership is the simple process of influence. If that is the definition of leadership, and I believe it is, that means that every single person is a leader. Say, I'm a leader. You might not be a good leader, but you are a leader. Because leadership, by definition, is the simple process of influence. With that definition, I hope you realize that each and every one of us, whether it's to our dog or a coworker or people in our employment or somebody on the street, when we're talking to them about the gospel, they are under, for those moments, somehow, some way, in a dynamic sense, they are under our leadership. They're following us. Whether it's in our train of thought or literally and physically following us. Some may be good, some bad, but all of us are leaders. Second, servanthood. To be a servant means to be someone who does things for others. Not a technical thing. To be a servant means that you are someone who does things for others. So when we talk about servant leadership... We're talking about a form or a style of leadership that is so constructed that the leader himself or herself is not against serving those he or she leads. This is very different from the world. This is very different from what we see the, you know, the pyramid of influence and so forth. We're not doing all that thing. We've flipped that pyramid upside down because Jesus says, I am the Lord and yet I serve. When it comes to cleaning these feet, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's not about the feet. Leon Morris says, It is not a way of cleansing the disciples, but symbol of that cleansing. It is not the area of skin that is washed that matters, but the acceptance of Jesus' lowly service. If you don't let me wash you, you will have no share. Man, we set up rules and checklists, don't we? If you do this, then that, and here are the prerequisites, and before that is done, this must be satisfied. And Jesus says, I don't need you to do any of that. Not only am I the Lord and Savior, but I'm also the servant in being your Lord and Savior. We, we sort of we make the death of Jesus Christ almost ethereal sometimes, but he really was broken and he really bled. And he did that so we wouldn't have to do it. He paid for our sins so we wouldn't have to pay for What else is servanthood? What greater form of servanthood is there than that? Now, when we talk about servanthood, it's important that we appreciate something. This event, as important and momentous as it is, it's not an ordinance. The thing itself isn't important. The thing that it represents is important. Let me explain. In the Christian church, in the evangelical church, well, I hate that word now. Let me just stop using it. Ugh. Terrible. In a conservative, credo, Bible-centered church, okay, I just cut out 75% of what the news means when they say evangelical. Okay. When we are there in that position, we practice two ordinances. 
One we're going to see next week, it's baptism. Baptism is an initiatory rite. In other words, baptism is something that demonstrates outwardly to everyone who has already participated in it that something has already changed on the inside. And then we're going to celebrate another ordinance, the second ordinance, and that is the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that here today. Man, we, I really wanted to do it the first Sunday we came back. I got outvoted. But I think it was wise for us to wait and just make sure we've got you know all the wrinkles ironed out. Why are you laughing? I know it was a public fight. It's not, it's not pretty when my wife and I argue in public. <laughs> That's what happens when two bulls are in the same room. But... In the long run, I think it was good. I think it was smart for us to get organized and so forth. But I say all that to say this. The Lord's Supper is so important. It's so important. Because it reminds us. Who doesn't get out of whack sometimes, right? It reminds us this is what it's about. It's not about all the other stuff. Sure, that's part of Christianity. But Christianity is built on Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. That's Christianity. And that's why we celebrate. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as often as you do it, you proclaim the coming of the Lord. Why? The coming of the Lord. Because he's not here. Amen? He has gone. He said, I'm coming back. And we wait for that time. We anxiously and with excitement await the return of our Lord Jesus. But until we do, every time we participate in Lord's Supper, we say physically, that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And because his resurrection was accomplished, he's coming again in glory. Two ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. Some churches participate in this third ordinance of washing feet. We don't because we don't see it ever mentioned again in the New Testament. Like we do baptism. And we see Lord's Supper. We never see washing of the feet. Now listen, if you want to wash somebody's feet, it's your prerogative. But it isn't really set up as a means of grace in the New Testament like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Not saving grace, but you know what I mean, blessing. If you haven't been baptized, you need to get baptized. You don't know what you're missing. There's something about that identification. You're saying publicly to God, and you're saying to everyone who is witnessing it, that you have died to one way of life, and you have been raised up in Christ to a new way of life. If you haven't done that, you're missing it. you got to do it. Well, you got to do it if you want to be a member of this church. But you got to do it. To identify publicly with Christ in that way is such an important step in participating in the Lord's Supper as well. But I went a little longer on this than I wanted to. I wanted to make this point. We don't see foot washing later in the New Testament. It doesn't happen regularly. We don't read a text that says, and then Paul took a towel and washed Peter's feet, etc. If that was the case, then Alex and I would be washing each other's feet. Maybe not. <laughs> but you understand you understand, it's about the service and the lowliness of the service that namely, if our Lord was willing to take a knee and wash a bunch of grown men's dirty feet, who are you to say you are too good to serve? Who am I to say that I am too good to serve? Now, while we don't see this anywhere else in the New Testament, we do, however, hear of numerous 
uh, times, we do hear numerous times that the apostles wanted us to serve. A couple of texts are going to come up here on the screen. One is 1 Peter 4.10. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve. You see that? Use it to serve. As good stewards of God's varied grace. I love that word varied in the Greek. It means multicolored. Beautiful. 1 John 3.18. Little children. I don't think, by the way, he uses this term a lot. I don't think it's like a, you know, like a pejorative term, like a demeaning term. I think he's saying he's the father of his church. He loves his church as children. This is my family. Beloved, he would say. Loved ones. Let us not love in word or talk, but how? In deed and in truth. So we get a lot of reminders about the importance of service in the New Testament, but not necessarily washing the feet. Another great example to make this point before we go to our final point this morning is that of Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles are preaching and the people are saying, hey, we're not getting an even distribution or they're not helping us with the service of the poor and the widows, etc. And the apostles did not stop and say, oh, well, then we can't preach and teach and pray. We've got to go wait these tables. No, because God had gifted them for that service. So what they did is they raised up people who God had gifted for that area of service, namely to take care of the widows and the people who had need. The pastoral ministry, and in this particular case, the apostolic ministry, is about preaching and teaching and praying and counseling and advising according to Christianity. But it takes all kinds of servants to run a church. Amen? I look out on our church, and I think of the people, some of whom are online, and the things that they have been able to do and the strength that God has given to them. We have so many great servants here. We have people who are so involved in ministries because they want people to get to know Jesus. And it's such an encouragement as a pastor to know that although we're running at like 25% right now, feels like, I know that we will continue to increase and add things to our calendar. It might not look the way it did before this pandemic. But it will continue to go. And I know that we are one of the healthiest churches in South Florida right now. We are. I've talked to my friends. I've talked to other people that go to other churches. One of them said it was embarrassing. It's embarrassing to go to church right now. There's nobody in my church. Not my church. We've got people online. We've got people who are here physically. And it's such a great encouragement when we show up to do worship and our family is here. Why? Because this is part of our service. Amen? So we're all called to serve. It might be a different capacity, might be in a different way, but each and every one of us is called to serve and the demonstration of our Lord Jesus to serve in such a lowly and simple manner demonstrates to us the greatness of service, the importance of service. But let's not forget that Jesus served knowing that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father. If you think serving is going to do something to your confidence or something to your uh, reputation, then you're not going to serve. But if you know who you are in Christ, you'll serve. 
Let's go to our last point, and that is this, the speech. The speech. This is found in verses 12 through 20. I'm going to wrap up this half of John chapter 13. This is turning out to be a little longer than I anticipated. I even killed the battery in the... But this is Jesus' culminating word. This is his final word in this particular situation. He's, he's, he's sat everybody down. He's talked to them about how much he loves them and what he is going to do for them with his hour. Then he has taken the towel. He has washed their feet. He has said, you must be washed by me if you will have any share with me. Go to it then, Peter says. So Jesus serves these men, and then he goes down in verse 12 and says, it says, John begins with, when he had washed their feet and put, out his, put on his outer garment and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you, what? An example. That you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. That's another message. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. In other words, I am prophesying the event so that when the event takes place, you can look back on this and go, Jesus is Jesus is Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. First, I want you to note something. He shows them, then he tells them. He shows them, then he tells them. The talk comes after the walk. This is Discipleship 101, man. We want people to know a lot about Christianity, about the Bible, about doctrine, and we should, and they should. But discipleship is about the walk, isn't it? We don't figure everything out immediately. Jesus doesn't rush to a conclusion with his disciples and say, you guys should be telling me this at this point. No, he does it and then goes, let me talk to you about what I just did now that you've seen me do it. Isn't that what servant leadership is all about? I will do it and you watch. You do it, I watch. Now you go do it and have others watch. That is discipleship. That is what Christianity is all about. If we break down the process, that's when discipleship stalls. Jesus wasn't above it. He did it to his disciples so that they knew how to do it after his resurrection and ascension. When Jesus finished saying these things, Matthew 7, 28 says, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, 
because he taught like someone who had authority. And he did. He was a magnificent teacher. Everybody was either delighted or frustrated by the teaching ability of Jesus. But Jesus was also a servant in other ways. He didn't only teach. He also demonstrated physically that service was important, and you and I need to do the same. I also want you to hear me now. Jesus does this act, and then he takes the opportunity. I have given you an example that you should do also. I'm going to close with a few final words. And I think it's important at this season in our church, and if I can just be so frank in your life. I know we're not supposed to be touching and all that kind of stuff, but just imagine for a moment that I'm in front of you and my hands are on your shoulder. And this is what I want to say to you. In light of what Jesus has said here, I have done this for you so that you will go and do it to others. And what I want to tell you and what I think many of you need to hear is it's time to get unstuck. Some of you need to hear me. It's time for you to get unstuck. If you're looking for permission from the government, local or federal, you're not going to get it. Jesus has demonstrated a mode of life not so that you can stay in one particular point of maturity or growth or servanthood. You've got to get unstuck. Find ways to exercise your faith. Find ways to do for others. Find ways to be the man or the woman that God has called you to be in Christ. Christ. 